Hello and welcome back to the AOCPP podcast. My name is Penny Ernie and I'm a former designated nurse for looked after children and care experience as well as the chair for AOCPP Children and Young Peoples in Care and Care Experience Special Interest Group. In today's episode, I will be talking to Rebecca Pierre about her story as a care experience person. We will be discussing her time in an unregulated accommodation, her involvement with policy and campaigning, and how professionals can collectively work to better protect these vulnerable children and young people within the care system. So Rebecca, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what your experience as a young person in care was like? Penny, I'm really pleased to be here today and just to say I'm I'm really thankful for your organisation for spotlighting this issue first and foremost. So really pleased to be here. In terms of a bit about me, so I come to you as someone with lived experience and professional experience. So I currently work for the British Association of Social Workers, although I'm here today in my own right as someone with this experience. And I have spent many years as a frontline practitioner in child protection. I've also written a book on emotional well-being and literacy in children. So those are kind of my special interests, really. But I think that what I want to emphasize is, so you asked me about my time in care, and I would say that the first thing that comes to mind is that that is not an appropriate word at all for me. It didn't feel like care. It very much felt like the absence of that, really. So, yes, I was in care from 16 to 18. And before I moved into what is now informally known as an unregulated placement, I was in a variety of different informal foster placements, essentially sofa surfing and so I know what it is to go from pillar to post at a time that you're really vulnerable but the majority of time that I spent in care was in an unregulated placement which I think we're going to talk through now. Thank you Rebecca it's really sad to feel that you know you didn't feel as though you were cared for while you were in the care system and we hear this many times from young people particularly those that are 16 plus Um, And your vulnerability is just as important to be protected in the same way as any child in the care system. So it's sad and I apologise that you've had that experience. We want to highlight to listeners that although your experience was many years ago, the situation Mm. right now is as bad as it was then, if not worse. Can you give us some indication of what the situation is like for children today? Yeah, so I think the first thing that I would say is Admittedly, as an adult and someone who's really removed from that world, I think that I won't ever be able to fully understand what children today are going through, especially in a culture where over the past 10 years we've had a decade of austerity. You know, since I left care, there's been um, Brexit, the pandemic, the rise of 24-7 social media. So actually, I think that all of those factors in an increase of poverty mean that children in care today have it far worse than I did, to be completely honest. And I think the other thing that I would say is there's been an, an astronomical rise in the use of unregulated placements across the country since I left, you know, there's been an increase of privatisation. And so I think that the first thing to say is that many more children are in, in that kind of precarious situation now. I think as we speak, there's over 6,700 children in those situations. So I would say that the situation is far worse because also we've now got a government that is enabling these private settings, not only to set up, but to flourish. We've got a government that is discriminating 
against older children as well. So, you know, that has introduced legislation and policies that has really, in a way, made them exempt from all the protections that, that younger children are facing. So, yeah, I think it's much more complicated than it was when I was in care. I absolutely agree that, you know, at the moment, the complexity impacting on unregulated mm. placements is absolutely huge. We know that, you know, a third of young people entering the care system now are 15 plus and their needs are very different to younger children entering the care system. So it's a really, you know, it's a real challenge for local authorities to find accommodation. Given that the AOCPP is a very diverse association with many professionals and non-professionals from many, many backgrounds, nationally and internationally, it would be really helpful if you could give us some context around what does it actually mean when we talk about unregulated placements? Thanks, Penny. I'm really glad that you've asked. An unregulated placement can be any setting such as a semi-independent, a hostel, there's known to be tents and even barges where children are not provided with round-the-clock support in the same way that they would be in a foster placement or a children's home. So there's no regulations in place that say children need to have adult supervision and children in these settings are responsible for their own, everything from their own meals to paying for their own bills at many times. There's also no kind of limit on who can live there. So, you know, you can imagine that in a foster home, it would be trauma-informed environment and children would be around other children. But in an unregulated placement, children can be placed legally with adults. There's no safeguarding consideration. So those adults could have just come out of prison or could have drug and alcohol or mental health, you know, struggles of their own. So just to describe a little bit about the placement that I lived in, to give you some context and to help you visualise it really, the place I lived in had 30 odd kind of bed sits. So that consisted of a small bedroom, a shower and a micro kitchen. Um, it had a top-up electric meter as well, so I was responsible for paying the bills. And to be honest, half the time I didn't have the money because of benefit delays. And even though I was balancing A-levels and working 16 hours a week in a fast food restaurant, I just didn't have enough money to live. So a lot of the time I would be doing A-levels with no electricity. So I have this really vivid memory of writing an A-level essay and had a candle in one hand and a pen in the other. And that's how desperate things were. So what else can I tell you about the kind of setup of the placement? There are usually some staff members there, but as with many private organisations, some of those staff members didn't, in my opinion, and still don't have the qualifications needed to really know how to support children facing really complex needs. So in, in my case, there was one social worker who was there 40 hours a week and the rest were receptionists. Often I didn't know their name because it was a really high turnover of staff or there'd be students kind of guarding the doors at night. And these placements are often, to be honest, just magnets for criminal and sexual exploitation as well. So we know that children in these settings are more likely to go missing. They're more likely to be targeted by gang leaders who are looking for county line runners. They're more likely to experience domestic abuse and poverty. So whilst I'm sure there are examples of good practice overall just that lack of constant adult supervision and the lack of basic needs being met means that these placements really put children at risk. 
Thank you, Rebecca. I think that's a really powerful example for our listeners to truly understand what we're talking about when we talk about unregulated placements and not lose sight. These Mm. are very vulnerable 16 to 17 year olds that actually are just being left to their own devices, you know, to, to get on with things. I know that recently you wrote a very powerful and impacting paper about your experiences in unregulated accommodation using examples from your diaries, which you wrote while you were a child in care. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? So I suppose the first thing that I would say is just thank you to anyone who's taken the time to read that. When I was writing these diaries, I really felt very isolated and alone. I couldn't have ever imagined that, you know, 12 years down the line, people would be taking time out of their busy day to read them. So how how the paper came about was, I was aware of the Keep Caring 218 campaign and really just frustrated that the government was treating these children as statistics, that these are thousands of faceless, nameless children in these places. The policymakers would likely have never even visited or met any of the children who lived there. So I really wanted to use my own experience, which I'd been quite guarded about, to be honest, to bring it to consciousness, really. So I knew I wanted to write a paper exposing the wrongs of unregulated placements. So I, what I did is I took my the diaries I wrote during that time and I, I read them initially. It was a kind of form of research. I thought, OK, you know, some time has passed since I've lived in this place. So let me just really read over them and remind myself of what it was like. And during that process, I started to think, well, rather than me almost reading this diary and then summarising the issues, wouldn't it just make a lot more sense to photograph the diary entries and use them to speak to for themselves in a way, you know, using the child I was and using her voice rather than the adult I am now who lives in relative privilege to, to that child. So, yeah, I, I photographed the diary entries to almost give a flavour of life what the day-to-day reality is and much of that is poverty and and poor mental health and uh, just you know really living in a culture of fear every single day when I was living with adults I was living in a space where there were people who have just got out of prison who had drug and alcohol addictions adults who were really vulnerable and there I was a child who was just trying to do my a-levels and survive so Yes, that, that was the intention, really, to use my diaries to speak to how policy at a wider level impacts children at that, that kind of micro, meso and, and macro level in their own lives. Thank you, Rebecca, for that really powerful insight to what it was like in that unregulated placement for you. So given the vulnerability of these young people, what does it mean in reality in terms of that package around them so for example like education mm-hmm. so I think the first thing I would say is children in care are already much more likely to be neat so not in education employment or training but in these situations that is exacerbated because children haven't got foster parents or people who are really invested in them to check A, whether they're even going to school in the first place, whether they're attending, you know, B, how well they're doing. There's no obligation for anyone to turn up a parent's evening. There's no one there to help them think really about next steps, you know. So when I think about my time, I remember just being really embarrassed that actually, despite everything that was going on, I was trying so hard to, I was like almost clinging on by my fingernails to go to A-levels and to turn up, even though my day-to-day life was 
so hard and my attendance wasn't brilliant but I just remember feeling really embarrassed that when there was a parents evening no one would be there to represent me and I'd almost have to awkwardly ask the teachers to give me the feedback myself and I just felt really not cared for at those basic ways and I think the other thing is for anybody who has experienced trauma in in those early stages of their lives really education is a gateway to social mobility and breaking intergenerational cycles of poverty and trauma and when you place a child in a hostel that is obviously going to be massively impaired when I think about it practically as well I I lived mostly with adults but with a handful of children my own age and there were three uh, other girls who were under 18 and all of them got pregnant and um, well I would now say that they were victims of child sexual exploitation and so yeah that then has set the trajectory of their lives because no one was there to look out for them they were really vulnerable not encouraged to stay in school also it just means in the day-to-day practicalities of things that they can so easily fall through the cracks most people in my flat were getting into either gangs or they were stealing to get by or I think the other thing I would say is that they were really vulnerable to substance misuse because they were going through so much trauma on a day-to-day that that was their kind of outlet. I think for me my outlet as many children do this you know was to turn my rage and my fear inwards so I would just lock myself in my flat because I was too scared to go out and you know I fell into self-harming quite a lot so I think yes children either outwardly seek that support or they kind of retreat inwards and withdraw does that make sense absolutely because often you hear the term they vote with their feet Mm. and you know they go well they're 16 they're voting with their feet if they don't want to engage with professionals that's their choice but actually the reality is they don't know how to engage or they're too frightened to engage Exactly. And I think we really need to spin the whole narrative about engagement on its head. So I hear this all the time as a social worker, and maybe one or two times I was guilty of using it as well, because, you know, you just really get absorbed in the vocabulary. But I'd always hear people say, oh, so-and-so isn't engaging. And actually, I think when we're talking about children, it's never the child's responsibility to engage with the adult. We should reframe that and say, okay, we are failing to engage the child and really think about what that means. I absolutely agree with your comments. Children in the care system are children of the state and all children in care, no matter what authority is looking after them and has accommodated them, there is a corporate parenting group that is purposely set up as a multi-agency group to ensure that all those needs and care needs are met for every single child and young person within the system. I worked in health and I know that collectively together, we are still failing these children across the system and we need to be much more proactive in listening to your voice, your recommendations to inform corporate parenting groups to really make a difference for these young people within the system. So now that you are a social worker, how does your experiences impact the way that you work and the way that it informs your view in terms of working with children within the care system now? I think having the lived experience really impacts how I am as a practitioner, not not only in terms of the bigger things, in terms of what theories or but my own, you know, my understanding of trauma and attachment, but also in the day-to-day. So 
you know, I know what it is to live in absolute poverty and with insomnia and with really poor mental health. And I know that the day-to-day, the hourly things can be just as important as the bigger interventions, really. So the main things that I do as a practitioner when I try and to establish a connection with a child is remember what didn't work for me and what didn't work for me was having a social worker where much of what we did was just very table-based, where we'd, you know, sit down and she'd kind of get her clipboard out and, and go through some tick-boxy questions about my well-being. I didn't want to be like that. I wanted to be a practitioner who didn't invite the child into my very clinical kind of office, but I wanted to be a practitioner who really walked alongside children and met them where they were at. So I suppose in some ways, maybe it makes me a bit out of the box as a practitioner. So I've done everything from skateboarding with young people to rock climbing with young people, just trying to do activities that are dynamic. And I really understand that when you're at your most vulnerable, you don't want to be sat opposite a social worker. You don't really know making eye contact with them. And that if anyone's ever read The Body Keeps the Score, that the body really does do that. And that actually when you're traumatised, your body needs to be moving and you need to be, yeah, have some sense of agency and control. So I think I, as a practitioner, I really try and use the embodied self. And I, I also like to invite children to really dictate what we do as well and try to get their voice from them in a meaningful way. So, I mean, I can speak about this for hours and there's still loads of things that I could improve on and that, you know, I have so much room for growth and I've made loads of mistakes despite my the lived experience that I bring, but that's the main ones. I think that's a really powerful message that you've just given there, that actually, you know, frontline social workers need to be really creative in mm. the way that they work with young people. We know that the later young people come into the system, the more complex their needs will be, and mm. the more difficult it is for them to trust adults, because their experience is that they've been let down by adults. So that's a really strong and professional way of looking at it. So what do you Thank feel you. about that? I, I completely agree. And when I look back at my own childhood, I mean, I've not really gone into too much detail, either today or in my written work about why I came into care. But I feel really frustrated when I think about all of the teachers or all of the you know, janitors or just dinner ladies or anybody, you know, for years and years and years, there were signs that I wasn't okay physically and emotionally. So yeah, actually, when I came into care quite late, I just had no hope in authorities whatsoever because I'd been let down and I'd gone under the radar. So I, I had so much rage and mistrust of anybody. So I think, yes, I just completely agree that children in care who come in later you know it really is an uphill battle to trust anybody I think we both agree one of the most important things we can do as professionals to help children and young people in the system those residing in unregulated accommodation is to work to change policy what do you want to see happening I know that you've been very involved in the article 39 campaign as we have in the AOCPP do you want to tell us a little bit more about that yes so I suppose I would just say that I've been a very small cog in a whole machine that is the Keep Caring 218 campaign. I'm one of literally thousands of other people who have supported it. And so I also want to say that Article 39 have been leading on this campaign long before I was involved. So just to really put that out there. But yes, so the Keep Caring 18 campaign does what it says on the tin. 
what it wants is parity really and equality for children who are 15 and under who are protected from the you know ills of unregulated placements whereas 16 and 17 year olds aren't and so I know that many of your members will be very very familiar with the campaign as it is but I suppose some things that have come to light recently are that so in the past these placements would be referred to officially as unregulated but since then the government have made efforts to quote unquote regulate them so technically now no okay they are regulated but it's almost like there's been a regulation of the absence of care so Ofsted have set out criteria and, and will technically be regulating or inspecting these placements but the regulations are so weak in my opinion, as to be completely useless to anybody but the providers who the government seems to be protecting. And so, you know, some of the key differences, this is one of the common questions I get asked a lot is, okay, well, what are the difference in regulations? It, children aged 16 and 17 are responsible for, you know, if they sleep out, if they have a sleepover somewhere, they're responsible for that. Whereas if you're in a foster home or a children's home, you'd have to you know, there'd be oversight on that. You couldn't just go missing for 24, 48 hours and nobody knows. So really, in one way, that's a recipe for disaster in terms of children getting involved with gangs and so on. And another one of the ways the absence of care is regulated is that 16 and 17 year olds are responsible for their own medication, which again is just absolutely appalling. And I'm sure many, many of you already know about Caitlin Sharp, the 17-year-old girl who had epilepsy and she died in an unregulated placement like this because she was responsible for collecting her own medication and at the point she died she hadn't collected that medication for five months and that just shows how vulnerable 16, 17-year-olds are. They should not in any way be responsible for their health in that way and not only physical health but mental health as well. So I, I remember when I lived in the placement I didn't take antidepressants regularly, um, which meant my mental health and mood was really unstable. In the placement itself, I was introduced to self-harming as a coping mechanism. My mental health was worsened for so many reasons. But I suppose what I'm saying is children in these placements aren't even cared for at a basic level. You know, they're not provided with meals. No one is there to oversee education, whereas in a foster placement, all of these things would be a given and even in the prison system there'd be some oversight about health and education and meals and so in many ways I think children in these settings are treated worse than people in the criminal justice system I and mean, that's my opinion. And I would share that opinion actually Rebecca from my experiences you know these unregulated placements are very much seen as a stepping stone to independence yet we're talking about very vulnerable 16 to 17 year olds that come into care following a life often of trauma often of no positive role models and therefore just as you say their vulnerability is very much around their emotional and mental health and their ability to understand consequence of action and therefore although they're 16 or 17 and may well think that they know what they're doing what they want mm. they want to be independent emotionally their age can be quite often two or three years much younger so as practitioners we need to have that in the forefront of our minds all the time definitely and on your point about this being a stepping stone to independence I would actually argue that being in this placement stops independence because 
if you're living in a foster home, you can be taught how to cook, how to budget, you know, in a safe and boundaried and contained way. When I was in the unregulated placement, there was the odd cooking lesson downstairs, but I was absolutely terrified of many of the adults who had just got into prison. So I didn't even go downstairs to the cooking workshops because I didn't want to be in a room with an adult who was in many cases drunk or dangerous. I also didn't have money to buy fresh ingredients. So my cooking skills were far behind, I think, what many 16 and 17 year olds were in terms of independence as well. You know, if you're in a safe home where there's electricity and you have access to a washing machine, the foster parent can maybe show you how to do that. But when I was in the placement, again, the washing machine was in the basement. I didn't want to be in a basement by myself as a child with dangerous people around. So I just often wouldn't wash my clothes or I'd steal clothes from Primark or I'd ask friends if they could do it for me. So in many ways, there's almost a contradiction that how can you become independent if you're not almost in nurturing soil? Does that kind of make sense? Absolutely, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, you know, from the podcast today, that's a very strong message we need to be giving the listeners that, you know, when we talk about vulnerability, it is really complex. And I think just as you touched on earlier, with COVID, with Brexit, with the budgets that the local authorities are now having to work with, and the complexity of young people when they're entering care, it is a perfect storm. So we really need to work collectively together to try and influence that policy and create positive change. Definitely, I agree. And I think the other factor to add to that perfect storm that I haven't touched on is, you know, children who are refugees, who are fleeing war and and situations that as adults, we couldn't even begin to comprehend and that we've been sheltered from and the use of punitive policies and how, you know, the Home Office plans in the future to use social workers as a part of group to do unscientific age assessments and so um yes that that's another factor that I don't think was as prevalent at all when I was in care so lots of complications. So given that complexity that we've acknowledged today during the discussion and given that your you know your experiences what advice would you give to frontline practitioners that are working in a really difficult system at the moment? I think the first piece of advice, I'm trying to say this in a way that doesn't sound patronising, but I really mean it, is to educate yourselves about the policies and of what's going on. And I, I say that because I think sometimes as a frontline practitioner, I have been extremely ignorant of, you know, the broader policies and the legislation and what government is doing behind the scenes because I was just so busy. I didn't have time. I was already, you know, working in a system that was under-resourced and um, I had a caseload that was far too big to manage. So I suppose, yeah, it would be try and really educate yourself. We're working with a government that changes things at the speed of light at the moment and it's hard for any of us to keep up to date with it. Because I think once you have that education and once you have that knowledge, without that knowledge, you can't advocate for the rights of young people. And without that knowledge, you can't go to management and say, hey, hang on, actually... Let's go back to children's human rights and something isn't being done right here and actually there's better provisions available. So, yeah, I think that would be the first thing. I think, and I know that this is banded about a lot, but treat children in care as if they are truly your children and our children because they are, as a community, they are our children. They are children who have fallen from the cracks and 
just to go back to basics really do the litmus test if you're working with a child and you can see that they're kind of being given half half of provision whether that's at school or in the care system is to ask would this be good enough for my child um, and if the answer is no then just to fight tirelessly I think the other piece of advice I'd give is to respect children's autonomy and respect their wishes but also see their vulnerability at the same time so what I mean by that is you know, when I was 16 and, and 17, someone would have asked me, are you ready to live on my own? I'd have had a lot of bravado and I'd be like, oh, yeah, obviously, I'm really independent. I don't need anyone. But it's about seeking their inner child and not just taking that at face value, because beneath that tough exterior, there's often a traumatised little boy or little girl who, as you said before, you know, very rightly, has maybe an, an emotionally developed age that is quite a bit younger. So I think it's about seeing children really in terms of their developmental age and not adultifying them and I know that adultification is um, really topical at the moment especially with the appalling case of child Q and I would argue that children in unregulated placements are being adultified in the same kind of way you know why are we treating 16 and 17 year olds as adults when the rest of the population doesn't leave home till average 24.6 and that is increasing. So, uh, yeah, I would also say be aware of adultification. Thank you. Rebecca, for the listener, they've heard how well you've done in your life and what you're doing now and that you're a professional and you're working within um, children's social care as a qualified social worker. Can you enlighten us in terms of some of the journey you've had to undertake to get from that very vulnerable 16-year-old in an unregulated placement to where you are today? The first thing to say is thank you. I'm really flattered that you say I'm doing well. I think if you really dig deeper, people don't see what's on the underneath. So people don't see the hundreds of hours of therapy that I've had to put myself through as an adult to heal from some of this. And they don't see I was diagnosed with complex PTSD and how that has impacted me in so many areas of my life from you know relationships to just the way that I process information they haven't seen the times in my life where you know I I was at university and really really just desperately struggling to survive still I remember on my first day at uni um, I'd taken myself there as a care experienced person and everyone else is there with the parents you know filling up food in the cupboard and paying their deposit and they didn't see me just in a ball in the floor crying because I felt so isolated because I didn't have the first month deposit because I didn't have someone filling my food my shelf with food so I think that they they don't see that and also you know the the legacy of having had really poor mental health as a child um, you know I may present as one way now but I still have you know physical self-harm scars that I have to live with I still have to live with really having to be mindful of my health so one thing I didn't mention was that when I was in the unregulated placement there was one time where I ended up in hospital for four days because of my self-harming behaviors and by the way the the unregulated placement didn't even know I was there till day four, which shows that, you know, it's a level of institutional neglect. Um, but I was really vulnerable and I was, you know, hooked up to a drift and probably at the lowest point in my life. And, you know, there's a legacy to that. That's not just me at 17. 
there's times in my life now where I will get triggers for that or flashbacks or I have to be really careful about my health because you know being that unwell has an impact now so I, I suppose I would say it is a bit of a facade and common to lots of care experienced people that they may act one way but actually no one sees the hidden struggles and, and I think that also resilience plays out in different ways so there's lots of care experienced people out there who have gone on to do amazing things and have made an amazing difference you know locally or in their own lives but they maybe they don't have the privilege of having a platform or the kind of reach that I might have had in the last few months so yeah they're just some thoughts on that. So on that note within the association we have a special interest group as mm. you know and you have kindly agreed to support the next children and young people in care and care experience special interest group through a theme debate in relation to Article 39 and the topic that we've been talking around today. Also to touch on the appeal and how we collectively can influence policy so that children, including those young people 16 to 18 within the care system, are effectively safeguarded. Do you want to talk a little bit about the appeal before we close today? Yes, so I will start by saying I'm not an expert in the ins and outs of the appeal, but if you're listening to this, it's very likely that you'll be aware of the core outcome on, on this campaign, which was devastating. So I suppose now Article 39, and they have much more information on their website, are appealing that decision and there is still a crowdfunding effort. Yes, if you go to their website, you can donate. If you're not in a position to donate, you can share the appeal with other people. And also just to raise awareness of this issue is absolutely crucial. So please do share information far and wide. The more people who are aware and the more people who are mobilised, the better chance there is of, of gaining the right kind of support. I think I honestly think that if the majority of the population knew about this issue they would stand with us and actually I spoke to someone the other day who's an engineer they know nothing about social work whatsoever but when I explained the campaign to them they just looked at me and, and said isn't that obvious it's almost like why on earth are we having to campaign about this in the first place so yeah the other tip I would say is share not only within your social work colleagues and that's everyone from students to to advanced but share with your neighbour, with your friend, with your family. People need to be angry about this because it could be anyone's child. Thank you, Rebecca. It's been so powerful you speaking to us today and it was really generous of you to share your story. If anyone wants to hear more about Rebecca and her writing and her campaigning, they can through our website. And you can join us on the 15th of June at one o'clock to 2.30, where Rebecca will be talking with us again and helping very much in terms of debating how we can actually support and influence policy. And you can book a place online. Otherwise, thank you for listening to the AOCPP podcast. And thank you, Rebecca, again, for joining us today and giving us your time. It's been really valuable. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the AOCPP's podcast. If there are any specific topics you want discussed in future episodes, email us at hello at aocpp.org.uk. And if you would like more information about the Association of Child Protection Professionals, then visit our website at childprotectionprofessionals.org.uk. Thank you.